All right, we're in Exodus 18. It's called Balancing the Scales. Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God if you're physically able to stand? We're going to finish the chapter today, and we're picking it up, Exodus 18 and verse 13. And if you're new to us, we're going verse by verse through books of the Bible. We happen to be in Exodus, and we begin at verse 13. And I want to welcome all of you who have joined us via live stream. We love you, and uh, we're glad you're with us. Now, it came about, Exodus 18, 13, the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, 19, and I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders over thousands of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. And so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. And so Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. And then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. May you may be seated. I'm just going to raise up my hands and pray over you. Father, thank you for the image in Exodus 17 of Moses lifting up his hands and praying. And when his hands were up, the people were winning. When they dropped, they were losing. We know the posture is secondary, but the matter is that we need your help, Lord. We need your strength. And I believe that Exodus 17 is a foreshadowing of this chapter where Moses had Aaron and her to help him up on the mountain, but now he needs more help. He's got a big congregation to take care of, and there has to be better organization, and he can't do it alone. And we can't do it alone, Lord. We need you, and we know you're always with us, and you will never leave us, nor will you ever forsake us. And I pray over those who feel lonely today. There's a lot of lonely people in our world, a lot of people feeling like they're doing it alone, even when they're around a bunch of people. Would you minister to the need of the lonely today? Would you minister to our need as a body to be better organized, to have each one using their gifts to do their share so that not one person tries to bear the burden alone? You are our great burden bearer. 
You said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you, Lord. Would you give us solutions today? Would you give us your wisdom today? Would you give us application and insight for your glory? In Christ Jesus' holy name I pray and all God's people said, amen. When the boys were younger, they're now all grown up. Um, they were playing baseball and doing a lot of different things. And uh, their friends would find out that their dad was a pastor. And oftentimes they didn't really differentiate between a priest and a pastor. The friends didn't, they didn't know a lot. So they would say something like this. Isn't your dad like a priest or something? And my sons would say, well, he's a pastor. And they would say, if he's a priest, how are you here? And some of you get that because you know that for the most part, Roman Catholic priests don't marry and they practice celibacy. And so their friends were very uh, inquisitive, interested about how they arrived on the planet. And then they would say a follow-up question, and since you're here, what kind of pastor is your father? In other words, are you part of a cult or something, <laughs> right? And they didn't really understand what a Christian pastor is or does. Uh, I have a commentary on my desk, and it's from Philip Riken, and he's written a wonderful commentary on the book of Exodus. And he tells a story. He said that he was coaching soccer, and he's also a pastor of a congregation. And he said that a woman that was one of the team moms uh, had heard that he was a minister. And she said, so what kind of minister are you? And he told her a little bit about the church and the location and stuff. And she said, is that a full-time job? And Riken said he couldn't help but bust out laughing. He said, is it a full-time job? <laughs> it's more than a full-time job. And from my understanding of Riken's situation, they have a church well over 1,000 people. And he started to say this in the commentary. He said, I want you to imagine what Moses was facing because in all likelihood, over a million people exited Egypt and he was, that was his congregation. They were a new nation. For those of you who, you who are interested in timing, from the time they leave Egypt till they get till, to Sinai, it's three months. So they're learning a lot of lessons. We've been talking about spiritual lessons in the book of Exodus because it is a book about salvation. And we've talked about everything from salvation to spiritual warfare to prayer. Last week, we talked about evangelism. And now we're going to talk about the life of the body of Christ because we're going to have a classic text about implementation of organization in the body. How do we do this? How do we manage the people of God? I will tell you that, you know, being a pastor of a congregation this size is a big job, and it, and it really can't be done alone. And so we have, I think, five ordained pastors here and a lot of great up-and-coming leaders, a wonderful group of elders and deacons here, and many other leaders that lead various ministries. And it's a great team effort, and that's really what we need. And I pulled my title actually from Ephesians 4, and you don't need to go there, but let me just tell you what Ephesians 4 says. The Apostle Paul spent three chapters talking about salvation by grace through faith in Christ and who we are, that we're saved by grace and we stand in that grace. And then he prayed this incredible prayer at the end of Ephesians that God would do abundantly beyond what we could ask or imagine. And after praying that prayer, he said, now therefore... I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And he's addressing the church at Ephesus. The word worthy in Greek is a, is a Greek word called axios. And we're, it's where we get the idea of an axiom. And it's ba basically taking an equation and making both sides equal. 
So here's the image. Paul's essentially saying, now that you know who you are, I want you to balance who you are with how you live. To put it in contemporary language, I want your walk to match your talk or your walk to match your identity in Christ. And then he goes on in Ephesians 4. Many of you are familiar with the chapter. He talks about unity, that we're one body. He talks about spiritual gifts that Christ has given pastors, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists for the equipping of the body for the building up of the body of Christ, that we'd all do works of service, that we'd all be engaged. This morning at first service, we had a spiritual gifts class. How many of you were in the class? Raise up your hand. Understand we had about 12 people in there. And and that was a class about you learn where the spiritual gifts are, what your gift is. But it does you no good if you only have head knowledge. You must engage your gift. And Paul goes on to talk about in Ephesians 4 that the body needs to be connected so we can build one another up in love. Every member doing its share to build up the body. We do not have a Moses today. We have New Testament models of church leadership, pastors and elders and the like. We don't have a prophet. We don't have Moses. But we have the greater Moses, Jesus. Amen? He is the head of the church. And the good news is that he never gets weary. He never gets tired. No angel has to you know, pat him on the shoulder and say, Jesus, you look tired. I, I don't know if you're, you can do this anymore. No, Jesus is always there for us. He says, cast your cares to me because I care for you. He says we can bring everything to a throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus ever lives to intercede for his people. He invites you to come and you can rely upon him. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get sick of hearing our prayer requests. He wants to give grace, grace, and more grace. Amen? That's the greater Moses. That's our great high priest. But here's the truth of the matter. He uses human beings to accomplish his will. So while Jesus is in heaven interceding for us, he's given gifts to the church. Pastors, elders, deacons, evangelists, etc. We can walk it out from there. Sunday school teachers, you know, all the people who serve, missionaries. And he does this to bless the church and to expand its ministry. And he doesn't want you to do it alone. Some years ago, I was doing a message on temptation. I was talking to a friend of mine who, you know, is a, is a good biblical scholar and he studies the Hebrew. And he said, what are you preaching on? I said, I'm preaching on temptation. And he said, what are your main points? And I said, well, I'm gonna talk about staying in the word of God, putting on the armor of God, praying uh, and accountability and that kind of thing. And he said, let me ask you a question. What do you think the role of fellowship is in fighting temptation? And I said, you know what? His name is Chris. I said, Chris, I, I didn't really think about that, but I think it's important that we have other people that we could go to when we're feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling isolated, that we could have the body of Christ to help us. Not just pastors and teachers, but even other brothers or sisters in Christ, amen? You find great strength in that. And so anyway, uh, this scene is about that kind of thing, and it's gonna carry over into New Testament models of church leadership. Pick it up in verse 13 with me, Exodus 18. Now, it came about the next day. You say, what's the next day? Well, the day before, Moses had shared with Jethro, his father-in-law, all that God had done. Jethro makes a pronouncement of faith. He says, 11, now I know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. 
Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, sacrifices for God. So this is an act of worship. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God, probably before the glory cloud of God. A beautiful time of salvation and then worship and then fellowship. That's how we ended last week. And the next day is the day after that, verse 13. So Jethro's a brand new believer. He's entered into the covenant community of Israel and he spends a day at work with Moses. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, essentially, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> Dude, <laughs> have you ever had a friend say this to you? What are you doing, <laughs> right? And the Hebrew has the idea of discontentment or fault. Like, this, this is not working. This is not good what you are doing. Now, I will tell you that what Jethro is about to say has become models for New Testament leadership, but it's also been criticized by some scholars. Somebody as uh, well-known as Philo, a Jewish uh, scholar, took great umbrage, or he was against what Jethro said, and said it was worldly wisdom that Moses should not have listened to his father-in-law, that Jethro didn't know what he was talking about. And somebody as prominent in our own lifetime, who's now with the Lord, as J. Vernon McGee, agrees with Philo. And I was reading McGee's commentary, and I was a little bit surprised, but he said that Jethro's wisdom was worldly wisdom. Get this. And McGee says that he hears the hiss of the serpent in the garden in the advice of Jethro to Moses. And I was like, whoa. I shared it with a couple of people in the office. I was a little taken aback. And I will say this, that even if there's some different agreement, uh, disagreement with Philo, and I guess Josephus had some issues with Jethro, and you know, J. Vernon and McGee, and perhaps others, I will say that Jethro's advice and counsel, I believe, is solid. And I'm going to argue that it was from the Lord. But I will say this, and this is a practical point of application. Just because someone's a believer, in this case, he's one day in the Lord, right? But we do know that Jethro was a mature man, father-in-law, priest of Midian. He wasn't, you know, just wet behind the ears. So uh, we, we, here's, here's my point. We've got to be careful when people offer counsel to us. And in what sense should we be careful? I think we should be open to what people have to say. I think we should be teachable. But I think we also need to test everything against the word of God. And it would be nice in life if every situation we faced had a Bible verse. Amen? <laughs> because if we had the Bible verse, we wouldn't have to worry about other people's opinions or practical wisdom or anything like that. But life and the Christian life, as you well know, is not like that. There are many things where the Bible doesn't have necessarily a crystal clear verse on it. There may be a principle, but there may not be a crystal clear verse. So what do you do in those cases? You open yourself up to godly wisdom. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. If one person tells you something, maybe go to two or three other mature Christians and say, hey, I've been mulling this over. What do you think? Take it to God in prayer. Look for biblical principles, obviously, that affirm that truth or confirm that truth. But don't be closed off. 
Don't think that you can't learn anything. I mean, imagine being Moses. Okay, Pop. <laughs> you know who I am, right? I've been signing autographs all day. You see my staff in the corner? I just held that over the Red Sea and boom, Red Sea split. Egyptian army drowned, you know. Don't you know who I am, brother? I got this. No, no, no. Moses didn't do that. In fact, Moses was the most humble man on the planet at this time. And humility is a very important part of leadership. If you think that you've arrived and nobody can tell you anything and you don't need any practical wisdom and you're just closed off and it's my way or the highway, then you are going to fall on your face at some point. We all need to keep learning. We all need to remain teachable. There's passages that I will reread and find new things that I never saw before in the Bible. God always does that. And so when Jethro offers this advice, I think his motivation is good. And I'm going to say that I think it was spirit-inspired, as I will share in a moment. I think reading between the lines here. But I will also say I see the caution of some of the scholars. McGee basically says this. He believes that this structure from Jethro produced the Sanhedrin, that's the 70 leaders of Israel in Jesus' time, plus one, the high priest, and they were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And so McGee's like, ah, uh, <laughs> on Jethro's wisdom. At the same time, we have to understand that the elders and leaders that were selected in Jethro's advice became the New Testament model for elders and pastors in the church. And so we can't just take one example, negative example, and say, oh, it's all bad. What Jethro intended to do was bring more of the congregation, if I can put it that way, into the solution. And I think you're going to see that that was solid. So here's Moses. He's seated as a judge. This is the judge would seat, uh, sit, as is in modern courtrooms. And the difference here is that the people would stand around the judge and here you can see the caseload that Moses had. This was from morning until evening, and Jethro watched the whole thing. And it would appear that there were so many people with so many problems that Moses didn't even get through with a stack of files on his desk for the day, if you know what I'm saying. And some of your careers are like that, right? It seems like companies want to squeeze everything they can squeeze out of employees, and you get more and more stacks of file folders on your desk, and you're like, I can't do this. And some of you are dangling on the edge at work. You don't have enough help. You don't have enough time. You don't get enough vacation time. And my heart goes out to you because I know that's a difficult place to be. And I did work in the secular world prior to being, becoming a full-time pastor. And so I understand the pressure in corporate America and, and how disappointing some of those settings can be. But here, as Jethro watches Moses, he just sees all these people surrounding Moses. And we have what's called a judgment scene. Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 28. He said, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know when a judge walks into the courtroom and the bailiff will say, all rise. Well, there's a day coming when the greater, the greater Moses all judgment, John chapter 5, has been given to Jesus. Jesus, be the judge. And it'd be good that you know the judge. Amen? All judgment, listen to that, has been given to the Son. 
Jesus is the judge. That's why Jesus, knowing Jesus is so extremely important. This is not a, uh, a side peripheral issue. Jesus is the way, but he is also the judge. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. And Jesus, painting the picture of judgment coming in the future, said these words. When the Son of Man, Matthew 25, 31, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, imagine that scene, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This scene of Moses judging the children of Israel, sorry for the pop there, is a kind of a scene of what's coming. Jesus is going to sit on his glorious throne. I want you to imagine all the nations around Jesus. And here's what the Bible says. We can walk this out because you're familiar with it. There's a book of life. If your name is written in the book of life, that you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, by grace through faith, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone plus nothing. If your name's there, then he will say something like this to you. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was without clothing, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was sick, and you came to me. Can I walk it out a little further? I was a little kid in Sunday school, and you taught me about Jesus. I was a missionary on the front lines in the Middle East, and you prayed for me. And the saints will say on that day, Lord, when did we do that for you? And he will say, when you did this for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. He might say, you shared the gospel with me. You took time to show me the love of Christ. You welcomed me into your church fellowship. You welcomed me into your small group. We could walk it out in many different ways. See, the works of the children of God in Matthew 25 are gonna be reflective of people who are saved. The works don't save you. The works testify to the fact that you're saved by grace. But then the judge will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. And that great day is coming, brethren, a day of judgment when the judge, Jesus, will sit on his throne. And even the apostles are told they will have thrones and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. I know judgment is a very difficult, uh, debated matter in a contemporary culture like ours. The one Bible verse that non-Christians know is, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, most of them don't know the context in which Jesus said that, but the context is hypocritical judgment. Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll see clearly the speck that is in your brother's or sister's eye. Jesus was not saying not to judge in Matthew 7. He was saying, just don't be a hypocrite. Make sure you've gotten the stuff out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to help other people out like Jethro is trying to do for Moses in this text, right? And so here's the point. The church needs to be better at making righteous judgments. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 4. 
Does any, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6, 2? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6, 3? How much more the matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? What a sad day it is when the church has to go to the secular court to work out a court case of someone suing a church, which has happened in the United States of America. And I, I could go on and on about divorce courts in the United States and how two so-called believing Christians can go into a secular divorce court where they now hate each other and are trying to divvy up their belongings and, and the like. And I know there's a lot of pain even talking about this. But I want you to, to imagine just for a second that the saints are going to judge the world, which we just read, and judge angels. And we can't even figure out how to take care of our little matters in the church, Paul says. Like, is there not one competent individual among you who could work this out for you and you guys would actually take biblical counsel and figure it out? But there's nothing new under the sun. Moses is surrounded with all these people. What are they whining about? What do you think their complaints and disputes are about? Joe, he took a extra manna. He took, he took some of my manna, my manicotti. What? Can you imagine a husband and wife coming in? You know, Moses, finally, I'm so glad I, I got to you. This spouse of mine, I, I don't know what to do with him. Instead of the toilet paper going from the top down, he does it from the bottom up. It's really an issue for me. Have you noticed, there, people have a lot of toilet issues. There's issues about the seat and what position it should be and stuff like that. I have no idea what they were complaining about. But they had issues and there were so many of them that Moses couldn't even get to them all in a 12-hour day. And Jethro watched it and he was like, dude, this is not good. This is not healthy for you or healthy for the people. Now, I don't know about you if you have the gift of patience, but I am not good with waiting in lines. I will confess it. I do not walk in the Spirit most times in a line. If I had to wait for Moses till six in the evening and I was there all day, I think I'd be a little flustered. And that's what was happening. Moses was trying. He was doing his best. But Jethro, sometimes we need an outside person to take a look at what we're doing and go, uh... <laughs> Let me, let me write you a one-page report on what I see here. Uh, you're going to internally combust in a matter of days. Th this ain't going to work. This doesn't fly. And I know this can go out of the workplace into your homes for you mamas, right? Because th the toughest job on the planet is being a mom. And I know you're juggling all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, you talk about help, Pastor Michael. I need a 1-800-HELPLINE. I feel you. And I don't even know what to do about that, but I brought it up, so. <laughs> but I will say that it's easy for moms to feel all alone, so I'll just say that dads, we have to step up. And I know sometimes grandmas and grandpas and great-grandparents can take some of that load, and that's always appreciated. Clearly for Moses, his work had become all-consuming, Moses had one kind of fatigue in Exodus 17, holding up his hands, 
and quite another kind of fatigue uh, in a different kind of battle in Exodus 18. And, and we face both. And we need practical wisdom and we need to not try to do this alone. If, if you're trying to do the Christian life alone, that's hard enough. Let alone, you know, some of you are feeling isolated and lonely. And this is important. I can't tell you how important uh, leadership is in organizations, government offices, sports, churches, companies. We all get it. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that was happening, all that he was doing for the people, 14, a day at work with Moses and his conclusion, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, it's because the people come to me to inquire of God, to seek God's will, NIV. And when they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses says there's two primary reasons people come to me. One is they want to know the will of God, probably from the law of God. And two, they have some sort of dispute with a neighbor and they want to know what is the law concerning what we do with this. And the two probably meld together in some cases. I've got an issue with my neighbor. What should we do about this? So you can imagine so many new things coming at this new nation and Moses having to experience all this new stuff. And each time an issue came to him, I think he had to go to the Lord. If he didn't know what to do, he would have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, how do I do this? I want you to see something in Exodus 33. Flip over there. You might say, well, how did this work? And how did Moses get the insights that he got? 33.7 of Exodus. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp and a, uh, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. 33.7. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It came about whenever Moses went to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand. We've seen the imagery of the judgment here, the uh, courtroom scene. Each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as close as you can get without seeing the face of God. This is a Hebrew idiom. We'll talk more about this as we go on in Exodus. Just as a man speaks to his friend, and when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Back to Exodus 18. Here's the point. It would seem that every time Moses got something that had no precedent, like he didn't know what the answer was, he would go to the Lord. The Lord would somehow descend in his Shekinah glory and would share the information. And this is before the Ten Commandments. So obviously Moses already has laws and statutes being revealed to him before he gets the official stone tablets on Sinai or Horeb He's already getting case law and finding out, obviously, a lot about God's heart in situations and how neighbors, if we're to sum up the law, should love one another and should love God and one another as they love themselves. But this was not happening. And Moses' father-in-law, 17, Exodus 18, said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. None of us was meant to bear heavy burdens all alone 
not Moses, not anybody else. Moses was a humble man. He was a gifted man. He was called by God, but he was not meant to bear the burden alone. And I would just say minimally for those of you who are maybe new to the faith or you're not connected with the church, you got to get in a Bible study. You got to have somebody that knows you. You got to have uh, someone who's either female to female, male to male, who's your friend, who can pray for you. You've got to have some relationships like that where somebody knows who you are and you could ask for prayer and it's beyond just a Sunday morning, praise the Lord, yeah, I'm doing fine and great, and you may not. You may feel like you're dangling on the edge, but nobody knows because you haven't opened up your life to anybody. That is not the way to live the Christian life. And we can't say we're above counsel because Moses wasn't above it, so we can't be above it. So his father-in-law felt that he had to speak to him. And here is the practical of uh, the benefit of practical wisdom, immense benefit, I believe, to Israel and Moses. Just write down a verse, Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 15. Uh, it, it appears that Moses may not have immediately implemented Jethro's full system um, you can read that separately, but Jethro says, look, you're going to wear out 18, both yourself and these people who are with you. The task is too heavy for you, and some of you need to mark this. You cannot do it alone. You cannot do this alone. Don't try to do it alone. There's a lot of lonely people in the church, and in the world. And if you know of someone who's lonely, maybe you could be part of that encouragement to them. I know some of you reach out to people and you do it without any official ministry or fanfare, and that's beautiful. Uh, that's some of that Matthew 25. I was lonely and you came to me. I was sick and you visited me, etc. That's That's the body life. And when people are engaged and empowered to go out and do ministry, it makes us stronger. It makes us better. Uh, I had mentioned this morning that we have a lot of young, up-and-coming leaders. I see a lot of future pastors here. I'm very excited about that. We have faithful pastors and elders that lead this church, and it's exciting. And it's not just about here. It's about other places where God might send uh, these young men who are training for ministry. It's great. You can't do it alone. And I was able to take you know, uh, two, three weeks off and the pulpit was well taken care of. Pastor Matthew and Pastor Shane and uh, different guys on Wednesday nights coming in to teach. Great, strong young men. I, I'm very excited about that. And so Jethro says to Moses, 19, now listen to me, and I shall give you counsel. You're, you're telling everybody else what to do, but even counselors need counsel, amen? <laughs> I will tell you, getting involved with other people's problems is taxing, can I get a witness? We have a few that do this for a living. It's fatiguing. And it's not that you don't want to help, but it's that you're human too. And when you get involved in people's drama, what happens is you can't help but carry it. And this is not dissuading any of you from getting help because we're supposed to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6 2. But it's still heavy for us. And I often feel exhausted when I'm in the trenches with people. Sometimes the toughest is marital counseling. Do you know why? Because when most of us decide to go to marriage counseling, you know what we want to do? 
We sit down and we say, okay, finally, I can tell somebody what this guy's been up to this whole time. What he doesn't do, what she doesn't do, right. Just put your seatbelt on, Pastor, because here we go. And we go from the toilet paper to the, you know, the honeydew list to this and that and up and down and back. And I'm not getting this and I'm not getting this and I'm not getting this. If you go into counseling to complain about your spouse, it ain't going to help. You're probably going to wear out your counselor <laughs> and you're not going to help yourself. But if you go in and say, you know what, we got some issues, but we both are here to work on them. We know this is a two-way street. We know that we both bring our frailties and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies to this marriage, but we want to make it work, and we're in covenant together, and please give us biblical wisdom and knowledge. Now, that's a whole different ballgame. Amen? That, that's where now you're going to make some improvement. I didn't hear one amen. I said the amen. I was hoping you guys would sneak it in there. But your spouse is right next to you and you don't know what to do. Anyway. And I love the fact that Jethro not only discerns the problem, but he's going to offer counsel on how there is a solution. I shall give you counsel. God be with you. That's, I want you to test it. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. And then he, as we'll talk about in a moment, select others to help you with the task. It is always wonderfully refreshing when someone not only gives you constructive criticism, but offers a solution as well. So some years ago, I took a phone call at the church. Well-meaning church member says to me, I believe that we need this particular ministry at the church. And we were a smaller church at that time with not a lot of people to help. And we were doing something similar, but kind of different on, a, on, a, on another level. And this person said, I really think we need this. And I said, oh, well, then is it on your heart to start it? Uh, I mean, if you're passionate about it, we could really use your leadership. And if you want, oh, no, 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 I don't want to. I want the church to implement that. And I said, aren't you the church? I mean, isn't this a team effort here? Is, you want us to add something else? We don't have the manpower or the resources to do one more thing. But if it's on your heart, we'll certainly surround you. We'll, we'll certainly come alongside you and su support you in that. No, 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 I want you to do it. If the church gets the mentality that going to church is like going to our favorite restaurant, we'll grade how the service was, We'll, uh, it's like going to our favorite store. If, if I got good service, then I'll, I'll let you know. And if not, well, you know, maybe we should consider uh, an alternative plan. <laughs> you got it wrong, man. If, if the church in the modern age continues to present itself as a spectator sport, where everybody comes and gathers a couple times a month, and yeah, it was pretty good today, or it wasn't so good, or didn't like the tie, or whatever, and you leave, then we're not the body of Christ. Amen? This is the truth of the matter. And sadly, the church has become more about consumerism in many pockets than about the body and the life of the body. 
And the good news is here, there's so many people engaged in ministry and, and it's going well. And so many of you have leadership qualities. The room is filled with leaders. But I will, I'll say when I talk about the church, I'm talking about the wider church. And I want you to notice something else about Jethro's counsel. He provides solution and he doesn't tell Moses, oh, you shouldn't be the prophet anymore or you know, somebody else should be there. No, he just is reordering and dispensing the leadership in a different way. And that's important too. Moses' calling is undeniable. He just needs help. And so you shall select 21. The idea is do it with discernment and insight. Out of all the people, here's the qualities you should look for. And this is why I think Jethro's wisdom is from heaven. You are to pick able men. What does that mean? Men of strength, efficiency, ability, virtue, and valor. Rise up, O men of God. Rise up, O men of God. We need men to stand up. Men who will fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it speaks of reverence, humility, obedience, to know God, to fear him, to seek his glory above all things. We need men of truth. Men of truth are men who speak the truth. They have stability in their lives. They're trustworthy. They're firm. They're faithful. They're reliable. Men who hate dishonest gain. They cannot be bought with a bribe. They are not in ministry for money. You shall place them over them as leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Oh, Lord, how we need these qualities in men, not only of the church, but what would happen if these qualities were found in corporate America and government offices around this land? You see, many people, I was on a conference call with an attorney who is a man of faith, and he was talking about all the COVID stuff and everything that's going on with organizations and pressure and all this stuff. And he said these words, and this is a man who has great faith and has fought a lot of fights on the front line. He goes, I, I no longer have any confidence in the legal system, in politicians. He said, I've lost confidence. I think we're in the last days. And when you hear someone who's normally positive and is fighting the good fight in court cases and doing a lot of great things say something like that, you're like, wow. And oh, that we would find able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain, and who will step up. God said in Ezekiel 22, I searched the land for someone who would stand in the gap and take up the hedge, but I found no one. Looking for leaders. Heaven is continually scanning to and fro upon the earth, looking for a man through which God can show himself faithful. I've watched this for three decades now, brethren. And I will say to you, there is a desperate need for strong and godly leadership. And these qualities, which move over into the New Testament qualification for elders, in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, verses 6 through 9, 1 Peter 5, and essentially it says this, if you're going to shepherd my people, you need to have my heart. I want under shepherds who are under shepherds under the chief shepherd. I want you to have my heart for my people. I want you to make it about my glory and not about yours. And I could, I could talk about politics and I could talk about all the disappointments in different realms of life, but this is addressed to God's people, so we gotta start right here. Amen? 
Because if I told you of all the church scandals in the last five years, and I began to delineate them from this pulpit, we'd be here until five in the afternoon we pass around the peanuts. There's people falling left and right who have been given positions of authority in the church. And I say this with fear and trembling because anyone who says anything like this could fall on their face in the next moment. Because we have, we have an enemy. We have a very real enemy. And we know the, the combination of issues that have gone into church falls, pastoral falls, they're always the same. They're when a man thinks that he can do it alone in the power of his flesh. And then the fallout can have different branches from the same tree. A man gets prideful. He thinks he's got it. He thinks he doesn't need any help. He's got it all together. He's got a Moses complex. He's got the staff in the corner. He's written the book. He signs the autographs. And down he goes. And the fall is usually hard. And that's the one time the press will report on the church. They won't talk about pastors who stay at the bedsides of sick people and pray with families, and enter into all kinds of people's pain. I could go on and on about the list of things of pastoral duties. And you might be shocked to know there's a very long list of things that we get involved with. And I'm not trying to make this more than it is, but only to say to you, it's a big, big job. It's a big call. And we need more men of valor. We need them. Desperately. And I thank you, you guys who pray for us. And those of you who are part of the solution, faithful uh, board of elders and deacons and pastors and so many levels of leadership, I could go on and on about how you guys faithfully serve to make this happen. But this is what we need. In Acts chapter 6, you know, they, they had thousands in the church and some of the widows felt like they were being overlooked and they chose seven men. But those, those seven men were to be filled with the Spirit. They were to be men of wisdom. They weren't just warm bodies. There, there's, a, there's a standard, brethren. And, and I think we've lowered the bar too much. This is what I am going to say to you. I think we've lowered the bar too much. Instead of calling men higher, men and women higher, I think we've lowered the bar. And so, so people think, well, it's going on over there, and they don't care about that over there, so we won't care about it. But what we should care about is the glory of God. So here's the solution. Kind of like, almost like our court system of the day. Let those who you appoint judge the peoples at all times. Let every major dispute uh, they will bring to you, every minor dispute, almost like a, you know, a Supreme Court and lower courts, uh, they themselves will judge. So it will be easy for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands, if he affirms it is what you could take from this language, then you will be able to endure. <laughs> I want you to last. You're my son-in-law. You're married to my daughter. You have my grandchildren. And all these people also will go to their place in shalom, peace. Bring it to the Lord for approval. That's always a positive thing when someone says that. Make sure that the Lord is affirming this. And so Moses listened to his father-in-law, 24, and he did all that he said. He was not above counsel. I'm sure he went to the Lord. I'm sure, you know, Moses was hearing from the Lord, and I'm sure he probably said something like, is this you? And if it is, then help me to implement it. Some of you might be saying, well, why didn't God just give direct revelation to Moses about the structure of uh, this system? I don't know. 
But how about this? Maybe God was trying to say, Moses, you're going to be a model for sometimes there's going to be a Bible verse and it's going to be very clear and revelation from God and you'll say, there it is. And there's going to be other times where in a multitude of counselors, you'll find ways to implement spiritual truth. Amen? You got to have both. And of course, we need godly wisdom to discern, you know, what's from God and what's not. And so Moses heeded the advice and notice he did all that he had said. He followed Jethro's plan to a T. Proverbs 9, 8 through 10 says, Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In the classic, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. Right before it comes the teaching of a wise man will, will receive counsel and will increase in his learning. That's part of what it means to fear the Lord, is to be teachable and to be open. And that's indeed what Moses did. He had a blind spot. He couldn't see it. Jethro saw it. And uh, I believe the Lord probably just confirmed this as another example of how we glean wisdom in the Christian life. The Bible's first. We pray about everything. We test everything. But sometimes in the multitude of counselors, that's how God gives the wisdom. And so Moses, final verses, chose able men out of all Israel, seem seemingly across all the tribes to have good representation, made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what Moses did. There was a selection process. The people were involved to some degree, but Moses confirmed everything. And they judged the people at all times, 26. The difficult dispute, dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. And so Moses bade his father-in-law farewell. And he went into his own land, having given Moses, I believe, a great gift of structure and wisdom that guided Israel all through the wilderness wanderings and beyond and moved into the New Testament model of elders and pastors. I will say, um, as I think about this, and if the worship team can hear my voice, why don't you come on out? As you study the New Testament passages on leadership, there's something interesting in 1 Timothy 5, and it says this, that... Basically, elders who rule well are worthy of honor and even double honor. And it goes on to say, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Let me say what the conclusion of many is in this regard. They say that in the First Timothy 5 passage, I'm trying to remember the specific verse, um, it, it implies that there'll be some elders or pastors who do the bulk of the teaching while other ruling elders will help rule the congregation or, in this case, shepherd the church, supporting that main teacher but having equal authority. So I, I do see that, and I think that's why some of you may be curious, well, why don't all the elders just rotate? Why is there one main teacher? That, that seems to be implied in the First Timothy 5 passage, that there are some that spend more time in preparation teaching because perhaps they have more of that gifting or calling or what have you. In Revelation 2 and 3, when it addresses the seven churches, Jesus does 
to the angel of this church, Ephesus, Laodicea, you name it, Smyrna. The angel is angelos in Greek, and many scholars don't believe it's a literal angel. They believe that each of the letters addressed to the seven churches are the lead elder or pastor of that congregation, which would imply that in the structure of local church leadership, you can have like a senior pastor, a group of elders and pastors that are all doing the work together, but perhaps one who is identified as the lead in terms of that congregation. I, I put that forth to you just so that you understand not only the structure, but the accountability that goes with that. Because if you're a man, and we have people who watch this who are from various parts of the country, and you're called to lead a church, guess what? You're going to answer to the chief shepherd. Let not many of you become teachers. We will incur what? The stricter judgment. So when I get up behind this hunk of wood, as much as I would like to flip my hat around and say, let me entertain you. I want you all to like me. I want everything. You're a champion. You can make it. You can do it. That would be my flesh, but I'm not called to that. I'm called to teach the word of God. Amen. And the good, the bad, the hard. <laughs> and you get it every week. You guys keep coming back. That's what amazes me too, that you, you keep coming back. For some reason, no, I know what you do. It's the living word of God, amen? amen? And we know we need it. And so Moses obeyed, listened, and implemented the plan. In Jesus' earthly ministry, when he's, uh, he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's, he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John, Mark chapter 9. And they're talking to Jesus, and the glory cloud's there. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. In Mark's account, after that miracle happens, Moses and Elijah are not to be seen anymore, and only Jesus is left there. Moses representing the law, Elijah represents the prophets. By the way, Moses is still alive. Long after the Bible says that he died and God buried him, uh, 1,500 years later, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Your loved one who has gone on in the Lord, they're very much alive. And we got a reunion day coming, man. But, yeah, amen? But Moses and Elijah, law, prophets, fade into the background, and only Jesus is left, as if to say the law and the prophets are fulfilled right here in the judge. And the judge, bow your heart with me, became human and took our judgment. More than that, the judge took his own judgment. Lord, you're the judge. And what's amazing, John 5 says, all judgment's been given to you. And yet the judge took my judgment. How could it be that you, my Lord, would die? For me, how could it be that the one who could have raised and lowered the gavel on my life a million times would come down, fulfill the law, and die in my stead? What amazing love is this for the poor and the powerless, 
like me. And you entered into our pain. You said, I will not leave you alone. I will come to you. You are preparing a place for your people. And our judgment has already been dealt with. It was paid for at the cross. And one day we're going to hear, well done. I was hungry and you fed me. I was a little kid in Sunday school and you taught me. I was a homeless person and you prayed with me. Lord, we know that you're going to say those words to us. And it it amazes us. We're going to share in some respect, even in the judgment of this, of all that's fallen. We'll have the privilege of being with you as you wipe away every tear from our eyes. As you take and destroy death once and for all, it'll be gone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for taking our judgment and thank you for defeating death itself, which is the wages of our sin. Even that you took. You tasted it for every one of us. You conquered it as you said you would. You brought life and immortality to light through the good news of the gospel. What can we say? (laughs) If the judge is for us, who can be against us? Lord, we take great refuge and joy in our salvation and For those of you who are not sure that you're saved, my encouragement to you right now in these moments, don't let them pass you by, is run to the Savior because the judge is also the Savior. And he loves you. And he gave his life for you. And it's something like this, Lord, I repent of my sin. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to be born again to a new hope in Christ. If you've been running from your father, this would be a good time to run home, come back to the Lord, get back involved. And for all of you sweet saints to take great joy in the truth of God's word, to know he's for you, he's not gonna leave you alone. Some of you feel lonely. But he's never gonna leave you, nor will he forsake you. That's his promise. So I pray in the lonely places for some of you. It's it's more profound than others that he would meet you in those lonely places and you find new ways to connect with him and with others. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time you've given us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name.